two snowflakes fell to the earth. They were but inches apart, high up in the, the Rocky Mountains, the top of a mountain on the ridge line. One fell on one side, the other on the other. And as they melted that spring, that those tiny droplets of water, one of them headed down through the earth into springs and streams and rivers all the way to the Pacific Ocean, and the other drop of water just inches away went the other way, down through the streams into the Missouri River and then the Mississippi River. It passed by the arch and finally just past New Orleans. It made its way into the Gulf of Mexico. Two identical, almost, snowflakes, because they say they're never truly identical. I've never checked. I haven't checked all of them. It's a lot. It'd take a lot of time. But two identical, almost, snowflakes falling on the same ridge line in the, in the Colorado Rockies, and one of them ends up in the Pacific and the other in the Gulf of Mexico. What happened? There was a dividing line between them. An invisible line that none can see, but nevertheless a dividing line, the continental divide. To the west, all water moves toward the Pacific. To the east, all water moves to the Gulf of Mexico. A dividing line that two seemingly identical snowflakes falling just inches apart could end up in completely opposite destinations. Friends, we're going to talk about a dividing line that runs right down the heart of the human race. And depending on which side of that dividing line you're on, you could end up in very, very different locations. That dividing line is Jesus. And as he was crucified, there were crooks on either side of him. Luke's gospel simply calls them criminals. The other gospels tell us they were thieves, sentenced to die for their sins. And to one, Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise because the dividing line is Jesus. We're going to look at the gospel according to St. Luke. This is the 23rd chapter beginning in the 32nd verse. You can follow along. This is God's gospel. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him, with Jesus, to be executed and when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and the people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him, and they said, He saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? And we're punished justly we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. 
is now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. And when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. But all those who knew Jesus, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. What do we see here? They came to a place called Skull. They crucified Jesus with two criminals, one on the right, one on the left, and between them hangs Jesus, the dividing line of the human race. We see different responses to the cross of Jesus. Some mock Jesus. You've got the rulers sneering at him. You've got the soldiers mocking him. You've got, you know, the sign over top, the, the titulus in the Roman practice of, of posting one's crime upon their cross. Here, he's, his crime is that he was the king of the Jews. The criminals on either side, one starts hurling insults. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself. Everybody, in effect, is turning to Jesus as he absorbs the wrath of the Father against all of our sin and guilt in his great love and in the Father's great love, giving up his son. There are people who are sneering, basically saying, if you're really the son of God, come down from that cross and stand before me, and then I'll bow down and worship you. And within days, Jesus would do exactly that. But they would still not worship him. Don Carson says this taunts are sarcastic. They think they've stopped Jesus. They're feeling good about having executed him. Some mock him. There are different responses, but some others says, watch. The people stood watching. See, they're curious. They want to see the outcome after they've lobbied for Jesus' death, presumably. The crowd's not there, you know, for Jesus' personal moral support. They're, they're also, though, not mocking him either. They're watching. Uh, they're not sure. They're hedging their bets. They, they witness as the sky grows black and the sun is darkened out and darkness comes over the land. Uh, elsewhere we read about earthquakes and other things happening. They're realizing that God is displeased with what they have done. That this is a righteous man, a representative of God, one who is God's man for the hour and that they have put him to death. They're beginning to worry. They're not mocking him, but neither are they bowing down. They stood watching. And we read that when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. They're, they're grieving. They're filled with remorse. They don't yet have saving faith in Jesus. They do, however, uh, uh, realize that something unjust has happened and they have been complicit. They don't fully realize what they've done, but they know that God has a quarrel with them. Jesus is the dividing line. On the one hand, some are mocking while others are just watching. And yet, on the other side of Jesus, there are some who believe, who see his love and, and put their faith in him. It's a diversity of people. You've got a Roman soldier, presumably a pagan, who praises God, the true God, in seeing the cross. And he says, surely this was a righteous man. 
you know, we've got some of Jesus' followers. He mentions, specifically Luke mentions the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance. Uh, we've got among the criminal class, you've got, you've got these two crooks, uh, presumably thieves, uh, and, and one of them is, rebuke, is, is mocking Jesus, but the other is rebuking him and then turning to Jesus in faith, acknowledging his own worthiness of death. He says, you know, I'm being punished for my own sin, but this is a righteous man. But it's not just that he's noticing that Jesus is righteous. He's turning to Jesus because he's recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the one who had come to redeem God's people as the king of the Jews, the one spoken of by Daniel and others, uh, the prophets of old. And he says, Jesus, he's the only person who addresses Jesus by name, is the dying, executed criminal who's turning to Jesus saying, I'm getting what I deserve. I have no complaints. But Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Only he, knowing his fate is deserved, seeing Jesus die, looks to him for a place in God's eternal kingdom. One commenter says, some saw Jesus raise the dead and did not believe. This robber sees him being put to death and yet believes. It's like that, that scene 25 years ago when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out with Mel Gibson. And, and there's that scene where Jesus is being flogged and whipped and beaten and then hoisted up to the cross. And, and, and there's a group of women who had followed him all the way. Uh, to Jerusalem, and they begin to weep and wail and grieve at seeing the Lord of glory butchered. There is the dividing line. Some mock him or just stand by and watch, not ready to put all my chips in, holding some back for myself, hedging my bets, and then others from every background, the criminal class, the pagan Romans, the, the Jewish followers, women, everybody from every background saying, okay, Jesus, you are the son of God. What is happening here is evil. But all my, all my chips are, are with you, Jesus. I'm not holding any back. All my eggs are in your basket, and I'm trusting my soul, my life, and my future to you. You are the dividing line of, human, of humanity. What about you? Which side of Jesus are you on? Is your heart teachable and humble? Do you hang on his words? Do you cling to his promise? Or are you watching, holding back, keeping chips for yourself? Jesus is so urgent that we see him and that we be on the right side of him because we see Jesus here opening up the path home, the path to God. You know, we read that the, the temple curtain was torn in two, and, and the temple, of course, was, was where God lived. There was the, the holy place where only certain priests could go certain times of year, twice a year on their rotation. And then beyond that was the, the holy of holies, the most holy place where, where no one could go and live because it's where the throne of God was. It was where the Ark of the Covenant had once been, been kept, the mercy seat upon which God himself sat as the throne ruler, the king over God's people, and, and there were two curtains, uh, one in the, the, that inner sanctum, 
separating out the Holy of Holies and the outer curtain at the front of the temple. And we don't really know which curtain was torn, presumably more likely the outer one because it was visible and people knew it happened, but it could have been the inner one. But see, the curtain, there were these curtains that were very, very elaborate Babylonian tapestries. They were blue and scarlet and purple. Don't think like little flimsy drapes. This is heavy you know, like rug hanging down from, from the threshold above. And, and those, those curtains were a keep outside. Because inside the temple, as you just see all the descriptions of, of the base relief carvings and whatnot inside the temple. Inside the temple were palm trees and pomegranates, all of the garden. Inside the, the temple in gold on all the way up floor to ceiling on every wall was covered images of Eden, images of paradise, the garden of God where God lives himself and where everything therefore comes to life because they're in the presence of God, the life giver. Inside was the throne of God. Inside was our Lord. Inside was paradise. Inside was, was life itself, the garden of God. And the curtain is there saying, you may never come home again. God is forever separate from you. He is holy and we are unholy. He is filled with love and we are so harsh and unkind and, 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 and so much less than the best of humanity. There is this, this dividing line and we're on the outside and then we read it was about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Think of what it would be like to go in through those doors and to suffer immediately. You, you think of of, of Moses when he beheld God's glory. God hid him in a cleft of rock because he said no one can look upon God and live. Think of Uzziah uh, in, in, the, in the Hebrew scriptures reaching out to touch the Ark of the Covenant and falling immediately to his death because he had assumed that his sinful hand was cleaner than God's good earth. And here, beyond, there's this curtain saying you have no access to God. He is holy. And you are forever expelled from Eden. Always east of Eden. Never returning again to paradise. And at the sixth hour, the darkness was from noon to 3 p.m. by our reckoning. The whole place grows pitch dark. And then we read that the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The other evangelists specify that it was torn from the top to the bottom. It was not a mere man who had ripped open the pathway home to God. It was God himself seeing the blood of Jesus, seeing Jesus absorb our sin and shame and guilt and cruelty and watching it crush him completely. And the father was pleased with Jesus and salvation came and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. At that point, Jesus cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then we read, he breathed his last. And that was it. The most momentous event in human history. God the Son incarnate for us and our salvation. Dying. The author of life put to death and the curtain being torn in two. What does that mean? As Jesus dies, that barrier, that keep out sign was opened up 
Uh, Jesus has opened up the path home, the path back to Eden, the path back into paradise, the path back home to God who is life. And, and, and the thief says, Jesus, remember me when I come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me. Where? In paradise. Back into the temple. Back to Eden. Back to paradise. Back into the presence of the God of life. This criminal was probably thinking, Jesus, at the end of time, when God raises all the dead, will you remember my name and call me back to life? And yet Jesus offers him something far more imminent. No, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. You're going to wake up on the other side. And as you've drifted to sleep thousands of times, every day practicing for that last moment that this thief is getting ready to experience as he himself is dying, as he himself is preparing to give up consciousness for the last time, Jesus is saying, just like every morning, you're going to wake up on the other side and I'm going to be there. You're going to be with me in paradise, in the presence of God. It's a, a Persian loan word, paradise, that came to mean that, that eschatological garden or or. or what, what Jesus elsewhere described as Abraham's bosom, where, where the Jewish nation after death would return to Abraham, to their father. They would go home, if you will. And already Jesus has been praying for their forgiveness because they don't know what they're doing. And now Jesus, through his death, has opened up our path home to the garden where God is. How did Jesus do this? We have to go back to Eden, a story that Riley read earlier from Genesis chapter 3, where after our first parents rebelled against God and declared humanity's independence, we were kicked out of Eden. We were forced east of Eden to leave paradise, and we're all born, once again, not in paradise. None of us gets to start over again in the garden. We're all children of, of, of Adam, sons of daughters of, of Adam, who, who carry his guilt and his shame and his fallenness, and, and yet we read that there was an angel to guard the way back to the tree of life. God was saying, I am putting my cherubim, my messengers, my representatives here to guard the approach to Eden so that no one can go back to paradise. No one can go back to the garden. No one can go back into the presence of God. And this angel is, 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 has a flaming sword that's twirling from side to side. And if anybody would dare attempt to go back to God, if anybody would dare attempt to go back into Eden, back into paradise, they would be rammed through with that sword and die. And what Jesus was doing on the cross, friends, is he was ramming his body and soul straight into that sword and allowing it to puncture him, to pierce him. All of God's judgment on human cruelty and sin and hate and selfishness and unbelief, he is taking all of that on himself, ramming himself into that sword and opening up for us the path back to Eden, the path home to God. Death and divine judgment piercing any who do this. And so Jesus, knowing he and he alone has the capacity to open back the pathway into the temple, into the garden, into the presence of God, back to Eden, back to paradise, he walks into it out of his love for us and the perfect design of God the Father. Here with the sign, King of the Jews, over him. The King of the Jews dies for us. 
precisely because he is our king, the king of all God's people throughout all ages. And a king's job is to defend his people of their enemies, to fight their battles for them, to lead them in battle, indeed to sacrifice himself, his honor, his life, his very being for our sake. He, the loving king of the Jews, the king of God's people, defeats our enemies, pays our debts, rescues us, redeems us, and saves us for a future that cannot be taken away. For an identity is the family of God that cannot be taken away by poverty, by loss, by sickness, by hardship, by public opinion, or by death itself. Jesus, the dividing line of humanity, for us and our salvation, thrusting himself into a sword upon the cross so that we might say, okay, Lord, let me be with you in paradise. A few years back at the height of the refugee crisis, as hundreds of thousands of, of people sought safety and a better life in Europe, uh, you know, billions perhaps people, not only from Syria, but from North Africa, from the Middle East, from Iran, from, from all, sorts, uh, all, all sorts of places, uh, traveled first often to Turkey, and then they would take a very sketchy raft across the Aegean to Greece, European Union, and there look for help. And uh, aid workers have shared accounts of stories that many of these refugees shared with them. Uh, Darren Carlson is a graduate of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School um, in Chicago. He has a PhD from the London School of theology, and he shared some of these accounts, uh, including one about an Iranian migrant who arrived at a refugee center in, in Athens at six in the morning, visibly upset, and, and he told his story to an Iranian pastor that was working there at the, the refugee station. He said during the night he saw someone dressed in white raising up his hands and saying, stand up and follow me. And this Iranian asked him, who are you? And the man in white, he said, replied, I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the way to heaven. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he began to ask this Iranian pastor, who is this man in my dream? What am I going to do? Why did he ask me to follow him? How shall I go? Please tell me. And the pastor opened up uh, the scriptures and asked him, have you seen this before? He said, no. Do you know what it is? No. And the pastor opened up to John's Apocalypse, our, our book of Revelation, where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And the man began to cry. He said, how, how can I accept him? Please tell me how I can follow him. And so the pastor led him in prayer, and a peace came over him. And the pastor then gave the man a Bible and told him to hide it because some in the camps would cause trouble if they saw him with a Bible in his language. And yet the man replied, the Jesus that I have met today is more powerful than anyone in this camp. He left an hour later, came back with 10 more Iranian uh, people who, who asked the pastor if they could have Bibles too because they also wanted to see Jesus. Carlson writes, another friend of mine had heard the gospel in Athens, but she struggled to believe, and one day she went home despondent. She hid behind a couch in her family's apartment, and she began to pray. She prayed, you know what, God? Since I have absolutely no excuse, absolutely none, I've run out of excuses, I don't know what to do. But following you is going to mean denying everything I've ever believed, everything my family, generation after generation, has believed, and I can't be in the middle. 
I've got to be on one side or the other of you. I have to either follow you or not. I can't do this myself. It's hard to take this step. I need you to help me. And after she prayed, she said she didn't know whether she was awake or asleep, but a man in white came into the room. Her reaction was to blurt out, don't come close to me. You are holy. I am a sinner. Do not come close to me. But this figure called her by name and said, I told you and I tell you again, I am the way and the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that day she believed in Jesus and came into his family. Similarly, there was an elderly woman from Afghanistan that ended up in the Athens alone. Her, her children were still in her home country. And each week she would walk into a ministry center, clearly overwhelmed with the troubles of, of this world and her troubles as a refugee in a place that did not want her. Um, one Iranian pastor had prayed with her many times and explained to her about Jesus, but like many other people from Afghanistan, she wasn't really interested in hearing about Jesus. She said uh, at one point mockingly, she laughed at him and said, if God reveals himself to me, then do you think I'm going to follow him? Yeah. A few weeks later, she met Jesus. During the day, she walked by the ministry and there was no one there. The door was closed. So she sat down just to rest outside the door. And she says that she saw a bright light coming from behind her, so bright that she covered her eyes. The light was shining brighter than the sun. And in front of her, she saw a shadow. And then she heard a voice coming from that shadow, speaking in her own language, saying, my daughter, my daughter, the door is open for you. Come. And she replied, the door is closed. And again, the voice called to her. I am the Son of God. I am Jesus. And I say to you now, the door is open for you, my daughter, for I am the door. And she told the story, and as she told it, she began to tremble, and her heart was pounding as she proclaimed the peace and joy that she had experienced since Jesus had spoken to her. And she said, many times, Pastor, you encouraged me to pray that God would speak to me, and I thought it was blasphemy, but now I know that Jesus is real and Jesus is alive. And after talking to this pastor from Iran, she took some Bibles and she began giving them to other people, insisting that they also read about Jesus, who is the path back to God, the path back into the temple, the path back to Eden, the pathway, the doorway into paradise. Jesus who went to the cross so that we sinners from every background, every tongue, every tribe, every everything might find our way back to God in the face of Jesus. Let's pray.